0: Well, good evening, friends. It's good to have you here. Now, I want to ask the kids one question. Uh, You see my feet? Do you know what's special about these feet? They're beautiful. And why are they beautiful? Because tonight I'm going to bring you good news. And beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. That's as beautiful as they get. I won't let you get any closer. Well, we come to God's word. Greetings, first of all, from your friends at Grimsby. And uh, we pray for you on a regular basis. And we thank you for your prayers in return. And trust that the Lord will continue to bless both our works as we seek to serve him in this world. Well, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And you may recall that a month ago, we looked at the first four verses And we're just going to do a brief review, just a point review of the kinds of things we focused on in Peter's introduction and in his initial greetings and his salutation. First of all, he identified himself as the writer. That was good. We know it was Peter who wrote it. Then he took to himself both the privilege and the responsibility of two characteristics, one being a servant and the other being an apostle of Jesus. He showed faith to be the great leveler. The greatest and the least are saved by faith in Christ through the righteousness of Jesus, who is both God and Savior. And then he called on the Lord to grant them peace, to grant them peace many times over through the knowing of the Father and the Son. Then he told his readers that through that same divine knowledge, God's divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. He wants us, he directs us, he expects us to live a godly life, and he empowers us to be able to do so. He reminded them then of the divine promises that have been given that enable Christians to be more and more the imagers of Christ. And then lastly, he encouraged them to rejoice in the fact that they had been set free from the bondage of corruption in the world, which was there by sinful desire. So that's what we looked at in the first first four verses. Uh, This evening, we're going to take a look at verses 5 through 11. And we look at them in light of what he has presented, because now he takes believers really to the next step in what it is to live godly. He's very practical. He's very clear. It's not complicated, but it's challenging. So three points tonight. The first one, it's the long one. So keep that in mind. Number one, having escaped, now what? Let's read verses five through seven. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What Peter does, he doesn't give us a list of rules here. What he does is he lays out a framework of interconnected characteristics that undergird a virtuous, virtuous Christian life. That's what the Lord wants us to be, is virtuous. And he's giving us some direction as to how that, what that would look like. These characteristics are given by God in fulfillment of his promise to equip us, to do the works that he's prepared beforehand for us to do. Now, any time you start having doubts about just how big God is, picture God before the foundation of the world, determining every good work that every believer would ever do throughout all of history, planning it all ahead of time, and then bringing people into the world, electing them, saving them, equipping them, and enabling them to do those works precisely how he had planned them to be done. God is immense. There is nothing small about our God. So these are qualities that we should desire and pursue in order to live spiritually effective lives. We like to be effective as Christians. Now, the list he gives isn't exhaustive. There's few lists in the Bible that are absolutely exhaustive. They're usually representative, and other things could be added. And sometimes other writers add things to them in different contexts, but we need to see that it's this list is compelling in its thoroughness. And it's compelling in its humbling power. Because the Lord says, I I expect to see these things in you and in me. Now he tells us, first of all, before we get to the list, that this is going to require real effort. It's going to require energy. These things are not passively obtained. There's very little in the Christian life that comes by us sitting in a chair out back and somehow drinking it in from the ethosphere. It's not how God works. God expects us to make efforts. He blesses those efforts. He enables us to make those efforts, but he expects us to make efforts. We must actively seek these things out and have them implemented in our lives. And since they're essential to sound Christian living, Peter says here, make every effort. As opposed to just make an effort. We know what make an effort can look like. Ask the kids to clean their rooms. Dad, I, I tried. I made an effort. Well, you know what? Make a better effort. Here he's saying, don't just make an effort. He said, make, make every effort. This is an exhortation. This is an encouragement to, to exhaustive effort on the part of the believer. And then we're to seek to identify perhaps where they're lacking And then seek by God's grace to remedy it by filling those particular gaps. So he talks about real effort to start with. And then second, we need to see the starting point. And that is the starting point is faith. Now, some include faith as one of eight characteristics. Um, I'm going to use faith as a starting point and then just look at seven characteristics afterwards. Because none of them occur without faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus to be all he claims to be. And can do all that he claims he's able to do. That involves faith in him. Now we know this is the gift of saving faith. It's a gift that comes from God. That enabled us to turn from sin. Repent. Turn to Christ. And believe on him for the saving of our souls. Jesus himself is the object of our faith. We know that faith starts with Jesus. And faith only grows in Jesus. It all revolves around the Lord Jesus. These other virtues that he lists can't be obtained without this personal faith in Jesus and not in the way the Lord wants them obtained. So we come now for believers. What what can be built on this foundation of faith? What supplements will add muscle to our faith? Peter gives us seven. We'll just look at them briefly. First of all, virtue. It's interesting that the first of what we call virtues is virtue so we'll give it another name we could call it goodness we could call it excellence doing and thinking and desiring that which is good that which is excellent well to do that we need to go to the source of goodness where do we find goodness well we find goodness in God he's the source of everything good Anything of any eternal goodness or value comes from God. So the root is there. That's where we need to go to find. it. It's one of his core characteristics. And it's a divine attribute that the Lord enables us to display and reflect to some degree, not to the degree of his son, not to the degree of himself, but certainly to a degree in this world, we can display excellence and goodness and virtue. Perhaps it's best summed up in this. It can be seen in a life of moral excellence. Moral excellence. You recognize very quickly people who are morally excellent uh, or not. Uh, This is where we give the world no opportunity to think less of God's goodness because of our moral failings. Our concern sometimes is how we will look to the world. And if we fail, won't that be embarrassing for us? well that may be true but that's not the core the core is that we don't want people to think badly of god we don't want them to think badly of god's goodness or that he's incapable of this kind of goodness by our own moral failings so we strive for purity and cleanliness and that's not easy because we live in a dirty sinful world there's mud everywhere there's mud within and mud without and we battle All the time, seeking to live purely and cleanly before God. So there's the idea of of excellence and goodness. He says, add to that knowledge. Our minds need to be engaged in godly living. It's not just a matter of doing, it's a matter of, of thinking. It's a matter of understanding. We're to be a thinking, studying, wrestling, contemplative people with our thoughts. We're to be active in between our ears. We are. And the Lord enables us to do that well. So we strive to have correct insights with respect to people and circumstances by thinking and studying and wrestling. We we try to please God by weighing up every situation, every circumstance, and weighing it up judiciously By looking at evidence and then being quick to hear and slow to speak. And oftentimes slow to judge. I'm not sure if you've ever heard the expression, ready, fire, aim. It's unfortunate that that is like the life motto of some people. Is they shoot first and then they wonder, should I have? Well, Christians can't do that. Because God doesn't do that. That's that's not what someone who knows God does. We need to be careful and watchful and judicious in the things we say and do. We're to be practical by using common sense. Common sense. Why do they call it common sense? They shouldn't. It's uncommon sense. It's what it is, because it seems to be so rare. But it doesn't require a degree in anything to know sometimes what is right and what is wrong. And we know that when we look around the world today, and we just go... That is so wrong. It is obviously wrong, what they're saying and what they're doing. And we need to make sure we stand firm and we're steadfast when we come to those kinds of positions. Because the world is waffling. Uh, We just live in a waffling world these days. And so we need to use common sense in everything we say, we do, and think. Faith is strengthened through knowledge. Especially knowledge of God. Knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, anything related to the Triune God will grant us a knowledge that enables us to live godly before our Heavenly Father. The more we know the Lord, the more we'll be able to live godly. Self control. It would be easier to talk about lack of self control because that's just more obvious. Perhaps you've lost control. Sometimes, I never have. Not that I can recall. The older you get, the more selective you can be in terms of memories. But it's not nice to see someone who loses control. Like, it's not. I can't watch videos of road rage. I can't. It's just, it's scary when people seem to literally lose their mind when it comes to something that has upset them. Well, lack of self-control, certainly in a Christian's life, I think is the ultimate evidence of weakness. When we look at weaknesses and strengths in Christians. Well, that's a, that's a definite sign of weakness. I understand the Greek word here pertain to the world of sport. It's the same word Paul used uh, in, back in 1 Corinthians 9.25 when he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. He was talking about the Greeks. Uh, who were preparing for the games. There were four sets of games in Greek culture. There were the Olympic Games and the Nemean Games and the Pythian Games and the Isthmian Games. I-S-T-H, I just don't know who invented those four letters together. <clears throat> two of them were held every two years in different parts of the country. And if you were going to train and compete in something like the Olympics, then you had to start training 10 months ahead of time. You left your job. Wars shut down because the Greeks were always fighting each other amongst the city states. But they said, oh, the Olympic games are coming up. Everyone stops fighting for 10 months and you had to train. If you didn't train for the 10 months, you didn't compete. You had to give proof that you've been training for that length of time. That's dedication, It's dedication for the games. These are individuals who showed self-control and they denied themselves pleasures and pastimes that they would perhaps normally pursue all for the sake of excellence in a competing situation. They weren't controlled by external powers and pressures pressures but they committed to a regiment of exercise and training taking control of their preparations with a focus on the games they wanted to compete and to win <clears throat> and what did they compete for well in the olympic games they competed <clears throat> competed for a wreath a little laurel wreath a little crown on your head now when you went back to your home city uh, one particular individual who had won a gold medal gold medal had won, had won the wreath Um, He went back and they knocked a hole in the wall of the city and let him go through it. And then they patched the wall back up again. So he was the only one ever to enter by that particular gate. One person got free um, haircuts and shaves for life. Uh, There were certain perks that you received once you got home, but ultimately it was just that wreath that you competed for. Well, Paul tells us we don't compete for a wreath. We compete for a crown, an imperishable crown. An imperishable reward is what we compete for. But we should exercise self-control in a similar way, no less than these athletes. Another term we could use would be self-discipline. And of course, the impetus for control doesn't arise from outside, but from within. That's why we call it self-control and self-discipline. There is an external discipline that takes place. We've all been the recipients and sometimes the deliverers of of such a discipline. This is self-control. This is is someone controlling their urges, their desires, even what they may feel at times are their needs. Well, it's interesting that uh, Peter lays out this virtue here that's to be pursued, but he doesn't give any details as to how it should look in any given individual's life. This is something that could vary quite widely. Though we seek to maintain self-control through the power that God gives us, Like the external evidences of faith, it may not look the same in every individual. That is, the Lord grants to some a character that seems to be, that lends itself more to self-control, and they don't seem to have to battle that very much at all. They always seem to be in control, whereas others, self-control is an ongoing, never-ending battle. And somewhere in that spectrum, most people lie. But this is what we strive for. We strive for self-control add to that steadfastness also referred to as perseverance paul uses the phrase uh, standing fast quite often if you go to ephesians 6 uh, on half a dozen occasions he talks about standing standing fast Uh, it's the reason for putting on the armor of god you put on the whole armor of god we do that so that we can stand we're not easily shaken but we stand firm in the storms of life One thing that I think is emphasized with Paul, even when he talks about steadfastness and standing, it's not just standing, it's not just holding your ground. You begin by holding your ground, but then the idea is that you push forward, that we're going forward, that steadfastness is not just a remaining in place. Steadfastness is you start by that, but then you're moving forward, and that's what we're looking to do in our Christian life. One writer said this, Uh, This is the characteristic of a person who is unswerved from from their deliberate purpose and their loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. I like that little phrase, unswerved, right? To be steadfast is to be unswerved. The perseverance of the saints is one of the five Calvinistic claims when we come to the five points. But of course, we understand that even though we make every effort to persevere in trials, it's the Lord who ultimately preserves us. And we thank God for that. And he's the one who holds us fast. Still, we fight. Fight not to be moved from the clear doctrines of Scripture and the things that God has taught us. And not to doubt, but to apply them in our walk before God. And to that we add godliness. It's not the first time Peter's mentioned godliness. He mentioned it back in verse 3. The power is ours to live godly lives. You can quote me on that. The power is ours to live godly lives. Believers evidence godliness when we're fully conscious of God's presence in every circumstance. I found that to be really searching, that particular statement. Believers evidence godliness when we are fully conscious of God's presence in every circumstance. I tend to be more hit and miss I I think I'm more when things get difficult. I call on God and sense his nearness. When things aren't so difficult, it's easy to drift. It's easy not to focus on him. It's easy not to be thankful for everything that takes place. We take things for granted. Uh, We're guilty of presumption at times that the Lord, this is what he does. He looks after us. And so we just move on. But here, we need to be aware of God in every circumstance. We live as Calvin sought to live. Carl mentioned it in his prayer, Coram Deo, which means in the presence of God. That's who he lived. And that's what he's telling us to strive for in this command of godliness. So the challenge for us is to be godly in a wicked world, to display the attitude and characteristics of a person whose greatest desire is to please God through joyful, faith, joyful faithfulness and willing, submissive obedience. To that, brotherly affection, which we could also see as kindness. I was a big fan of one of the Cinderella movies. The one where she was in that magnificent blue dress. And there's a little thing her mother told her. Remember when her mother told her? Have courage and be kind. That That was her philosophy of life. Well, that's a decent thing when it comes to a Christian, to have courage and to be kind. Because sometimes we have courage and we're awful to people. We're not kind. We're the opposite of kind. Even the way in which we present truths to people, we don't present them in a kind way. We don't present them in a way that shows love or gentleness or brotherly affection. We just, sometimes we just hammer people, which is unfortunate. unfortunate. Because there's so much more to be gained by coming to someone uh, in a spirit of brotherly affection. So in this, we're looking to be quick to help and to share, to welcome, to pray, to forgive, to rejoice, to weep. Even the youngest children recognize kindness. And we're asked to show it everywhere. It starts in our heart. By caring and loving. It's expressed in our speech. How and what we say. And it's. In our speech. It's often most recognized. In how it is we judge. Because we can be. We can come down with a hammer. When it comes to judgment. And. Uh, so. In the midst of this. We're called back. By the Lord to say. Listen. There, there needs to be kindness. Especially when we're dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, then we come to the last one, love. Uh, love is at the root of the great summary commands given by God and reiterated by Jesus. He was asked by that one man. We read in Matthew 22, 37 to 39, and he said to him, this is Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a deep and abiding love. This isn't a superficial love. If we're going to love God, it's a deep, passionate love. Well, that's how we're to love our neighbors. Even though this overlaps with brotherly affection, I think Peter puts this in here because he doesn't want Christian love to be restricted just to Christian families and the Christian world. When you talk about brothers and sisters, yes, there'd be an expectation that we would love one another. But he goes further than that. And he says, no, no, there's a world out there that just, in some ways, is dying for love. Um, I was convinced in all my years of teaching that one thing never changed with high school students. Ever changed. There were two factors that I thought were constant. Number one, they wanted to know, how do I fit in? And number two, does anyone care? Those are the two Forget all the other things that are going on. At the core, at the heart, that's what they wanted to know. Does anybody care? Is there any love out there? I've read a number number of accounts on uh, things that college students suffer from. And the great concern that the vast majority have is loneliness. I think I've mentioned this before. You meet on a campus with 50,000 people. And you say, what's your biggest concern? I'm lonely. I don't, have any, I don't have real friends. I don't have anybody who really cares about me. Well, see, that's, that's where we come in. We should be the greatest carers on the planet. And so the world, what, what are we to be known by? We're Christians. We're to be known by our love. Well, love for one another, yes. But also love for the world. Now, it's unfortunate the world doesn't recognize our love when we look to share it. We come and we say, you know that lifestyle you're dealing with? It's not a lifestyle that is approved by God. Oh, you're something phobic. Like you're, you're this, you're that, you're hateful, you're bigoted, you're narrow-minded. You're going, no, I'm, I'm only telling you this because I love you. I love you. Well, if you loved me, you'd agree with what I say and let me do whatever I want. You go, I know. No, that's not love at all. That's, that's really the, the heart of hatred. It really is. So for us, we need to express the love and have it be seen in the world around us. Well, that's the first long point. Now we come to two briefer points. Number two, verses eight and nine. What is the outcome of exercising these virtues in our lives? She's given us these virtues, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. So what do they result in? What do they produce? Well, look at verse eight and nine. Four. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So verse 8, Peter encourages his readers with a precious promise for obedience. Having these qualities... Note, especially in an increasing way, not in just a stagnant level way, but in an increasing way, will make us effective and fruitful in knowing the Lord Jesus. We saw back in the first four verses that Peter's very focused on us knowing God the Father and Jesus the Son. He wants us to know them intimately. And here he comes back again. He says, You do these kinds of things, these kind of characteristics in you, you're going to draw close to the Lord, and understand things about his character and his person better than you ever have before. So this is the reward of that. It's one of our chief goals in this life, is to know the Lord Jesus better. That hymn, we don't sing it very often anymore, more about Jesus, what I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. That idea of more, 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 more about Jesus. Now, understanding that these virtues don't have to be taken in order that they're given, doesn't always have to be this follows this follows this. Uh, There's this framework, there's this package uh, that comes together. They're all to be desired and they're all to be sought after. Now, one thing that can be really discouraging for kids is you write a test of some kind and you get Oh, 94. And mom or dad look at you and they go, oh, that's, that's great. So what would you get wrong? I got, I got 94. Okay, that's great. But oh, let's look at that other six, you know. And instead of rejoicing in this, we look at this. There's room for improvement. To be honest, guys, I've had, they weren't parents. They would be guardians. Uh, mostly of students from South Korea, so they're living in a house and someone's looking after them, and they come into my my class for an interview and they have ninety nine percent, ninety nine percent, and she, the lady sits down in front of me with this little smile and she goes, "I would like to talk about improvement," and I go, "Forget it." Like, <laughs> You're 1% off perfection. But no, no, what can what can we do? Nothing. You can't do anything. No, no, no. What? Ugh. Difficult. What we have to understand is that often there is room for improvement. There is. Um, I'm starting, I've been learning to play piano. My scales, oh, they need improvement. All right. My left hand, my pedal foot, oh, we need improvement across the board. And I understand that. We need to understand that these things, these characteristics can always be improved. We never max out in these things. We never have enough self-control. We never have enough knowledge. We never have enough goodness. And that's not to discourage us. That's just to say that the Lord can take us higher and higher and higher because these things are to be ever-increasing. They're to be growing in our lives and we will grow with them. So living out these virtues will have an impact on those around us, unbelievers um, and on unbelievers. Because I think these words, effective and fruitful, they're directly applied to knowing the Lord Jesus better. But I think we can expand on that and talk about how it applies to the broader aspects of our witness and our testimony in the world. People see these characteristics in us, and they see them consistently, and they see them developing and growing over time. It speaks volumes in terms of our testimony. In terms of what can be done under the power of the Lord. Not just, it's not us. But the Lord working through us and the people around us see these things. And the Lord can use that to draw them into his kingdom. So friends, we need to be active, not idle. We need to be growing, not stagnating, certainly not declining. All right, spiritual declension is an awful place to be as a believer. If you're a believer, it's not irrevocable. The Lord can pull us back from anywhere. But it's such a discouraging place to be and such a discouraging place to see other people in. But even just to stagnate, even just to stay the same. So you come to the Lord in prayer and you say, Lord, okay, Mark talked about these things. Where am I with self-control? Like Is that, is that an issue for me? Maybe it's not. Move on to something else and say, oh, yes, yeah, that, that that is an issue. Well, Lord, help me. Help me do this better. Help me live this out in my life in a more consistent way for the good of our own souls and for the spiritual benefit of everybody around us in verse 9 Peter does what the writers often do they give the flip side of the coin so to speak uh, the opposite perspective and he warns of he warns us that a neglect of these virtues leads to a loss of spiritual sight resulting in what a declining awareness declension of what a believer owes the savior especially in the realm of sins forgiven. I don't think this is an accusation he's making to the people he's writing to. I think it's just an observational warning. Being nearsighted, I understand from the Greek word, it has to do with being myopic, where you can see things up close, but you can't really see things in the distance. They're fuzzy, furry, they, you can't really make them out. So an individual who has this spiritual lack of sight is able to see the things nearby, which are the things of the world. They can see the world clearly. But spiritual things, important things, godly things, they become difficult to focus on. They become blurry. And they become a challenge to pursue. This is spiritual blindness. It starts with a declining eyesight, but it can lead ultimately to an absolute blindness. And in the end if you can believe it, it results even in forgetting the grace of Jesus that cleansed us from sin. That's what he's saying here. He said it becomes so blind that you forget. You can't even see or remember, let alone appreciate the fact that Jesus cleansed us from our sins. So it's terrible end results. And it's something we need to avoid by pursuing these particular characteristics. Now, When a believer, however, by God's grace, is exhibiting these virtues in an increasing way, what does that do? Well, there will always be a looking back in gratitude. There will always be a looking back and saying, Lord, thank you. Uh, When we come and we're walking well with the Lord, there is this open confession before God. And we know that we come before him and we're confessing our sins and looking to repent and turn from them and seeking for the power to do so. Where do we come? Well, we come to the cross. We remember Christ upon the cross The thing that strikes me most when I, I'd like to be able to say repent for sin. Sometimes I'm just lamenting. It doesn't become repentance. I don't turn the way I should. But I'm saddened by it because I go, Lord, you suffered on the cross for this sin of mine. And then I commit it again and I say, you suffered for this sin. And you suffered for this sin and this sin and this sin. When we look back to what the Lord has done, it can, it can change our perspective. It gets our look off of us. gets it onto Him. And it, can, it appeals to our heart and our soul. And the Lord can move us back in a direction that is more spiritual. Well, this produces, I trust as you look back, an appreciative and ongoing gratitude to God through a thankful spirit where we rejoice in the Lord's work and we praise him ongoingly for his grace and his mercy in cleansing us from sin. Oh, we never move far from the cross when it comes to dealing with our lives. Third point, last point, verses 10 and 11. Assurance that your calling and election is true. Assurance. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we have Peter's conclusion to his exhortations regarding the promises that God has given and the virtues that he builds in us. In verse 10, he begins with, therefore, this is a summing up statement. So we look to what's gone before we look back to verses 8 and 9. And this is, what he's, this is what he's summing up in light of these things. Notice in verse 8, he addresses them as brothers. I think what he's doing is he's aligning himself with the people of verse 8, not the people of verse 9. Because he is able to look back and to rejoice in what the Lord has done for him. Well, in this verse, he gives us three, three brief lessons. Uh, number one, diligence. Diligence. Remember this section that started off with that phrase, to make every effort? We talked about that, make every effort. And now Peter continues and he says, be all the more diligent. Do you, do you sense a theme here early on in this, in this little letter? He's, he's urging people, he's pleading with people. Again, we're not allowed to be passive observers of Christianity. We're to be active participants. Uh, diligent efforts should be our overriding goal. This is something people should be saying, well, He seems to work hard. She seems to work hard in her Christian life, not just in terms of necessarily doing things that everybody can see, um, but being aware of uh, the kind of way they spend their time, uh, the number of times they talk about the goodness of God and the greatness of what the Lord has done. So diligent effort should be our overriding goal. Peter here, I think, has a sense of urgency. He's saying, listen, get on with these things. Get on with them eagerly and do them now. This isn't something you put off until later in your Christian life. Whether you're five or 50 or 100, get on with it now. This is something he's urging. So be diligent. Then he talks about election, second place. Every believer desires assurance that their confession of faith is true at one time or another. Things will happen. Usually it's the way we act or think and we wonder, wow, how could I be a Christian if? I do, or I say, or I think, these things. It's not an uncommon question uh, with believers. Well, from God's perspective, it's always election and then calling. Because election took place in eternity past. And calling takes place in present time. But Peter reverses that order here. And he gives it from man's perspective. Because from our perspective, we're first called... And then we look back and go, oh, I was one of the elect. We're not one of those people that go around saying, oh, if I'm not an elect, am I elect? Should I be elect? You don't worry about that. You obey the call and command of Jesus to come to him in faith and to believe. And when you do, you've answered the call. And then you will understand that you are the elect. So, election and calling, the key thing about them is they're both an act of God alone. Absolutely, an act of God alone. We don't self elect. We're good Calvinists. And we don't call ourselves to come to Christ. We don't. The Lord does that in grace and mercy. However, once called, there should be evidence. There should be evidence of our having appropriated that salvation through faith. It should be visible to us and it should be visible to those around us. Something to show that has been made mine. something that's personal, it's specific. And there are various evidences throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament. There are various evidences that the writers give to us that we we can look at ourselves and our own heart and soul and look at the list, what they give, the characteristics, and ask, do they jive? Do they blend together at all? Or are they opposites? Is there no connection whatsoever? Uh, you can look at uh, Galatians 5 and you'll read there about the fruit of the Spirit. We can go to God and say, Lord, do, do I display these things? Do I display these characteristics at all in, uh, in my life? Uh, love for the brethren, that's a sign that John is very keen on when it com- you look at the, le- the letters, 1 John 2.10. Uh, the keeping of His commandments, that's another indication that God has done a work with us. How well we forgive one another, or do we hold grudges? Like, what is our character like? Is it something that is Christ-like? And if it is, and we see that, and God reveals it to us, that should be a great encouragement to us. And give us assurance that, yes, as Pastor Dempster would say, the root of the matter is in us. The root of the matter. That it's, it's grounded in salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, here Peter is teaching that these virtues he's listed must not only be seen to exist, but they have to be pursued with effort and with diligence so that they grow. Seeing God develop these in our lives in an ever-increasing way helps confirm in our hearts and in the hearts of others that he has indeed saved us and that we are indeed a child of God. It's one significant way that. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, verse 16. See, the Spirit is the one who confirms it. And he, one of the ways in which he confirms it is through the development of these kinds of characteristics. And we see them developing, we see them growing, and we look back and we say, Thank you, Lord, I couldn't have done this on my own. This is a work of God. And it gives us assurance, and it gives us peace. And lastly, in this verse, the third point is established. This again being steadfast in the midst of any trial or challenge. He says this, practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Wow, there's quite the promise. Practice these qualities, you will never fall. Well, I'll suggest we may stumble. We may be tripped up at times. But with these qualities present and growing in our lives, God will enable us to stand and having done all, to stand and we'll experience a profound sense of assurance as we see God working on our lives for his glory and for the good of others. Well, that brings us to our last verse verse 11. Any who have watched the Mandalorian Mandalorian people here. Oh, come on. Okay. They have a mantra when they've done, when they do something that's Mandalorian like they say, this is the way. So the Mandalorians say all the time, this is the way. Well, Peter comes and he says, you know what? This is the way. This is the way into the eternal kingdom of God. And we thank him for that. The way into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Having come to Christ in faith, evidenced in part by the pursuit and display of these excellent qualities, there will come a day when we enter his eternal kingdom. A man named John Bengal, Never heard of him before. But he wrote this. Talking about entering into the kingdom. You may be able to enter. Not as having escaped from a shipwreck. Or from fire. But as it were. In triumph. Because of God's grace. As his children. God lavishes gifts on us. To make our entrance one that is richly provided. Now again picture. Picture this. Our sister Hetty. Just gone to be with the Lord. And I would think primary soul focus of breathing her last here, and opening whatever eyes the Lord allows in, in heaven at this point. And she sees Jesus. She sees her Savior. And is perfectly happy and rejoicing. When she comes in. God will say. Say well done. Good and faithful servant. And why? Because the works. She did. God prepared. In doing them. It was by his power. And through abilities that he gave. And whatever. Whatever. Good came out of it was the result of God's bringing good out of it. It's all God. And yet he says, well done. That's grace. And that is mercy. And Peter says, this is the eternal kingdom that we're going to walk into. And it will be glorious. I believe here his focus is probably on the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells um, after the funeral for Hetty, I went and stopped by the graveyard. I don't go by the cemetery very often where Mary Lynn's buried because, to be honest, I feel like an idiot. I stand there and I go, like, I'm not going to talk to her because she's, she's not there. I believe she's totally ignoring me. Like, she's all caught up in the things of heaven. Like, why? And then I stand there for about two minutes and I go, Okay, I guess I'll guess I'll go now. It's the strangest thing. But there'll come a day when I enter through the gates. That'll be different. Then there'll be much to say and much to praise God for. Well, we look forward to this eternal kingdom. Well, friends, we have a week before us, a week in front of us. Let's make every effort. Let's be diligent to see these virtues growing in our lives so we can be effective and fruitful in knowing God and in our efforts of testimony with the world. And we can encourage and exhort one another as we walk that path that leads to glory together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We, We thank you for those that pen these words. But even that, Lord, was by the guidance and power of your Holy Spirit. The word is all of God. The word is all about God. The word itself, the living word, is God. So we praise and thank you, Lord, that we can study and examine and explore. But we pray it may not stop at some academic exercise. Lord, that we may not just be satisfied with just a little bit of knowledge. But that, Lord, through your power, through your grace and mercy, through your wisdom and your providential, sovereign working in this world, you will help us to grow in these things, Lord. So we can look back and say, oh, I see the hand of God in my life. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul in Jesus. We ask these mercies in Jesus' precious name. Amen.